Folks, we're going to turn now to God's Word, and uh, Richard Harrison, a member of our church family and of our church committee, is going to be leading us in the reading of God's Word this morning. And we're reading from Genesis chapter 3, and we're reading one, verses 1 to 7 and verses 13 to 19. That's Genesis chapter 3. Thank you very much, Richard. Good morning. The reading this morning is taken from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 and 13 to 19. This is God's word. The fall. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realised they were naked, so they sewed leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl in your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Amen. Richard, thank you so much for reading for us from God's Word this morning. Um, My name's Gareth. I'm the minister, part of the team here in Orangefield Church. And I, I get the privilege this morning of opening these words up and helping us to think a little bit more about them. Because let's be really honest. This is probably one of the strangest, most bizarre chapters in the whole Bible. And and the Bible has some curious things in it, but this is, without a doubt, one of the strangest passages in the Bible. Like, when you think about it, there's a talking snake does that not strike you as strange? Taking a dander through Orangefield Park and a snake appears. Well, that'll be strange by itself, but a talking snake who talks back to you. Surely for Adam and Eve, this must have been one of the warning signs that something wasn't quite right. I'm just saying, 
Um, we're not told who the snake was in Genesis, but when we get to Revelation, the very end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, the Apostle John tells us that the, the snake is that serpent of old, the devil, Satan himself. So we're given in the bookends of the Bible the identity of who the snake is. But talking snake in the garden. Then, there's another question that's really strange here. How on earth was there an imperfect creature in the garden? Like, if you've been around for a while, church for a while, surely this has popped into your head as a question. No? Yes? It's bound to have. And I'm not even going to try to answer that this morning. Just throw something out at you. You know, on the first five days of creation, God says it is tov. It is good. The Hebrew word for good is tov. It, it, it is good. And then on the sixth day of creation, it, it's very good. It's very tov. But nowhere does God say it is Muslim, perfect. Discuss. I guess one of the questions I have, I'm doing well not choking the apple, aren't I? One of the questions I have when I think about this, this story is, why was temptation invented? Like if things were, were, were so good and so very good, why was temptation allowed to be part of the creation? And again, I'm not even going to try to answer that question, but it has to be something to do with genuine love has to be free to respond. And to be free to respond, you have to be free to reject. Otherwise, it's forced love, which isn't love at all. It's all very interesting. When you think about it, there's so much in this chapter. The big question. The big question, genuinely, is this. How can eating a piece of fruit do so much damage? That's the question. How can eating a piece of fruit do so much damage? There's three things I want to talk about this morning as, as we press into this text. The, the first one is the truth of temptation. The second one I'm entitling, Everything is Blue. That'll become more clear as we get on, trust me. Uh, and the third thing is ripples of redemption. Because eating the fruit is not the end of the story. But let, let me start by talking about the truth of temptation. We are, are, are reading a book alongside this teaching series by a guy called Pete Hughes, uh, who's an Anglican vicar who leads a church in King's Cross in London. You may have heard of his brother, Tim Hughes. He's written a few songs. Um, but Pete's book is called All Things New. It's a story, big picture story of the Bible. And in the book, he tells a story. And this story comes with a health warning. So if you're easily offended, this is the moment to go make a cup of coffee and then come back in. Just giving you that heads up on it. He tells a story about a, a, a group, a tribe of uh, Eskimos who live at the Arctic Circle who have developed a, a trap, a way of catching wolves. So the wolves don't attack their village. And what they do is they take razor blades and screw the razor blades into a piece of wood. And they, they put blood on the wood 
And then they bury it in the snow and they put blood on the snow. And these wolves have the most incredible sense of smell. And they can smell blood for miles. So they come thinking they're getting a free meal. And they come and they see the blood, they smell the blood, they start licking the blood from the snow. And as they lick the snow-covered blood, their tongue starts to numb. And then they get down far enough to begin to lick where the wood is and the razor blades are. But their tongue's so numb they can't tell that they're actually hurting themselves and they keep licking and keep licking until finally through loss of their own blood that they pass out. It's a horrendous story, isn't it? And yet there's something in that story that is the most incredible illustration of temptation and sin in our lives. The choices we make, what we think is going to be edifying for us and good for us, eventually numbs our conscience and leads us into death itself. There's something incredibly powerful in that illustration. I'm sorry if it offends you, but I I, I wanted to use it. When we look at this Genesis text, the snake, the serpent, slithers up to Eve. And I'm assuming Adam's there as well. And this is what what the serpent says. Did God really say? Did God really say? You see, it's not a choice between good or bad. That's too simplistic a way to think about it. That's not what this is about. It's a choice about are you willing, was Eve, was Adam willing to trust that God's heart for them was good? That God genuinely knew what was best for them and was capable of giving them what was best for them? Or were they going to doubt God's word and by doubting God's word, they were going to doubt God's character and God's heart for them and his design for them and his perfect plan for them, that they were going to doubt that and trust themselves to make choices. Did God really say? You see, Adam and Eve lived with this perception that God was withholding good from them. That God was withholding good for them. And they wanted to be people who could make their own choices and make their own decisions and steer the course of their own life and shape their own destiny. Does it sound familiar? Because a lot of that is the buzzwords that is driving the people and the culture and the age that we're in today. Be the best you you can be. I'll do me, you do you. You can do all things you want to do. And what Adam and Eve failed to see, what they failed to see is that God is actually constantly releasing good over them. You know, the opening chapters of the Bible, you can't go more than a few verses without seeing the words that God said, it is good. And then then he gave them something else and he said, it is good. And then he gave them something else. He said, it is good again. And then he gets to the place where he says, it's very good. God is consistently giving good things into his creation and for his people. He says to Adam and Eve, I've given you all of this. And yet they have this perception, this doubt, and they believe that God is withholding good from them and they can only get that good by making choices for themselves. They can only get that good by making choices for themselves. I know what's 
best for me. And the problem with making those choices, sometimes they seem so innocent, so simple. I'm just going to bring a bit of work home and do it on Sunday. I'm just going to lift my phone and, and, and do things on my phone rather than engage and play with my kids. I'm just going to not increase my tithe this year to the church. I'm going to keep it and spend it on me. I'm going to just go to that site online and, and look at that thing because nobody's watching and it's not going to hurt anybody. I, I'm going to buy another one of those. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. And the problem is, whilst you may wrestle with it the first time, by the third, fourth, fifth time making that decision, your conscience has been so numbed to it that you're not even aware that you're stepping slowly further and further away from God and from his choices for you, his plans for you, his invitation to life for you. Your conscience becomes numb like the wolf's tongue becomes numb. You don't even become aware that the choices you make are slowly leading you away from the author of life. And the problem with stepping further away from the author of life is you step further away from life in all its fullness and eternal life that he has given for you. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? And we project this onto Adam and Eve, but the reality is, Paul says in the book of Romans, that sin entered the world through one man, and death came through sin. But death has now come to all because all sinned. All of us make choices every day that lead us further and further away from God. Let's be honest about that. We trust ourselves more than we trust his word. We trust our own impulse for happiness more than we trust his heart and his character for goodness. And because of that, everything is blue. It's a strange thing to say, isn't it? Let me, let me, explain. Let me tell you a story. Kind of a story, not really a story. A confession, if you like. It seems like a good sermon to have confession in. A confession. I am wired warm. My body temperature, I'm pretty confident, is a few degrees warmer than everybody else. And that doesn't mean I've got COVID. It, it, it just means I'm prone to sweating a lot. Now, that's gross, isn't it? But I, I'm the guy at the wedding who, who, who keeps his jacket on and then gets to a point. Now, some of you blokes are with me in this. Now, you get to a point when you're wearing a suit and a jacket where you think it's getting warm. I should take my jacket off. And you have to act right then because if you don't, you start to develop these dreaded sweat stains. And once they come, you can't take the jacket off. You have to keep the jacket on for fear of people seeing the dreaded sweat stains. And it's not just here. You actually start to get one down the, the middle of the back. And anybody with me, guys? Anybody want to confess anything here? Uh, if, if you don't act at the right moments, you have to keep it on. And then it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And I'm pretty sure girls do it as well. Um, but I, I'm wired warm. I'm wired warm. And, and we think of sin a bit like sweats. This is gross, I apologize. But we think of sin a bit like sweat stains. You know, it's the, the slightly awkward bits that we, we need to cover up that we don't want anyone to see. They, they appear every now and again and we, we get embarrassed about them and we try and cover them up. But, but sin is not like sweat stains. Sin is actually more like, do you remember a few years ago we did the ice bucket challenge?
Do you remember? The Ice Bucket Challenge, where you had to nominate some friends and then get the bucket and... Don't worry, it's empty, it's okay. No panic. I'm not going to do it. But like the ice bucket challenge where, where you poured the bucket of water over yourself and it totally soaked every part of you. A friend of mine did that with a digger bucket on a JCB digger. It nearly took his head off. Uh, not recommending that, by the way. But we think of sin like sweat stains, but actually, it's actually soaked every single part of us and every single part of creation. A guy called Dean Ortland, he's a, he's a Christian author uh, and magazine editor. He has written a book called Gentle and Lowly. A number of folk here have read it. But in the book, he says, think of sin as the color blue. And if sin were the color blue, as we look at our lives, as we look at the culture around us, even as we look at our church, it's not that there'd be blue spots all over, little spots of sin everywhere. It would be that everything is tinged some shade of blue. Some things are, are navy, almost black. Some things are like a very gentle sky blue. But, but everything is tinged with the color blue. Sin has rippled through every part of God's creation. Every part of God's creation. Everything in that moment when Adam and Eve ate the fruit stopped trusting God's word, decided they knew what was best for themselves and created the possibility for that for all of humanity. Everything became a shade of blue. Everything became less than it was intended to be. And we see that in how God speaks to Adam and Eve because in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, he gives them all this goodness. He says, you know, you're going to be together in partnership with each other. You're going to be together in partnership with me. I'm going to allow you to create life and to multiply and be fruitful. I'm going to give you this whole creation to care for and to look after and to expand the borders of this garden until the fullness of the knowledge of God covers the whole of my creation. But in this moment when Adam and Eve said, we know what's best for us, sin came into the world and sin impacted every part of the goodness that God had released into the world. God turns to Eve and he says, from now on, childbirth is going to be really painful. Childbirth is going to be really painful. I've been in the room whenever my kids were born and um, it, it, it was amazing, it was beautiful, but there was so much pain. And particularly with one of our children, there was a, a lot of complications and a lot of fear and things were really, really difficult. Giving birth to the children becomes really painful. It's not that it becomes bad because I, I have these three amazing kids and I love being a dad, but, but it's the hardest thing I get to do. Child birth and having children becomes painful. So, some people who, who long to have children just haven't been able to. And some people who have fallen pregnant have ended up having miscarriages. And some people who have had children, those children have grown up and become really rebellious and have broken your hearts. And some children have been born into families where they've been abused and neglected and hurt. From this moment, the goodness of God's creation around family 
became broken, became cracked, became fractured, became tinged with blue. And it's not as simple as saying it became bad because, because if you've been blessed with a family or you're part of a family, you'll know it's wonderful. But we see beauty and brokenness intertwined in it. Does that make sense? Where before there was equality between man and woman, God now says um, that for the wife, her, for Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Inequality comes into relationships. And it's not that marriage isn't this amazing gift that God gives us. It, it absolutely is. But when the fall happened, when sin came into the world, it became difficult and, and there was inequality and there was pain and even at times there's abuse. And there's injustice that happens between male and female. There's inequality in the workplace today, even still. There's pay differences between genders. We see the implications of the fall rippling throughout society. It's not that everything became bad. But in everything, we see both beauty and brokenness. Everything became tinged with blue. Everything became less than it was intended to be. God says to Adam, you've got this whole creation to, to love and bless and look after. And yet in this moment, it becomes less than it's meant to be. I miss this lockdown thing. I, I miss going to the North Coast and standing in the water at East Strand in Portrush. Anybody give me a yes and amen out there? But I'm also deeply aware when I stand in the, the water and I look out over the scaries, as the waves start to crash around me, I'm deeply aware of within the beauty and the power of the ocean, it's full of plastic and rubbish. Because beauty and brokenness exist within the same breath. When I climb Cave Hill and stand looking over a sunrise over Belfast, my heart soars with the beauty of it, and yet I'm also aware that, that there are holes in the ozone that are leaking greenhouse gases into the world today. Beauty and brokenness exist within the same breath. When I was small, I used to think that sin was the bad stuff that I did and the bad stuff that happened in the world. And it is. Don't mishear me. It is. When I became older, I realized it wasn't just the bad stuff we do and think and say, but it was also the good stuff that has been left undone, the potential for releasing blessing, the potential for doing good, the good things that I could have thought, the ideas that came into my head that I never had the courage to act out or to say. Sin wasn't just the bad things I did, it was also the good things I left undone. And then the older I got again, and it is that as well, but the older I got again, the more I came to realize the complexity of the world that we live in. That in every sight I see, in everything I try to do, in every thought, word, action, there is a complexity between beauty and brokenness. And even the best things that I get to experience in this life, that you get to experience in this life, are less than they are intended to be because sin has impacted the whole of creation. Does that make sense? If you're in the building, I would say, you know, are you with me? And hopefully you would say yes or just look really baffled. I'm hoping you're with me. I'm hoping you're tracking. 
this morning. Everything is less than God intended it to be. Everything is less than God intended it to be. But there's ripples of redemption. There's ripples of redemption. On, on was it, I've forgotten it. Was it Tuesday or Wednesday, the inauguration? Wednesday? There's about eight people in the building here, so we've got a consensus with eight people. Um, Wednesday, okay. Did any of you watch it? Did any of you see Amanda Gorman, the 22-year-old um, poet laureate who read a poem as part of it? If you're a member of our church in Orangeville, I, I emailed the words of it out to you on the Friday email. But I just want to share a snippet from her poem. I thought it was incredible. She wrote this. She said, When day comes, we ask ourselves where we can find light in this never-ending shade. The loss we carry, the sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. In the norms and notions of what <laughs> in the norms and notions of what just is isn't always justice. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. She obviously said it a whole lot better than I just did. Simply unfinished. I want you to hold that thought in your head for a second. Simply unfinished. Because in Genesis chapter 3, what we see is Adam and Eve eating of this piece of fruit, choosing their own way. Sin enters not just into their relationship with God, but into every part of the created order. But the story is unfinished. And in this moment of unfinished, what we see is God coming towards them. Now, there's something really interesting. I've learned something new this week. It says in the English version of our text that, that they heard the Lord God moving in the garden in the cool of the day. Some of your translations might say in the evening, but you're familiar with this, yeah? I thought, I wonder what the Hebrew says. Now, I'm not very good at Hebrew, but I've got an interlinear on my computer that helps with that, so I'm not trying to project that I know Hebrew. I don't. But I looked at the original language, and in the original language, that's not what it says. It doesn't say in the cool of the day. It doesn't say in the evening. What it says is they heard the breath of God. The Hebrew word used is ruach, which is the Old Testament word for the Spirit of God or the breath of God. In this moment of unfinished, of this moment where sin has come in and deconstructed and decreated all of the goodness that God has done, made everything less than it was intended to be, in the unfinished, in the chaos, in the guilt, in the shame, what we see is the Spirit of God coming, 
Where have we seen that before? Go back to Genesis chapter 1. And in the first couple of verses, what we see is that the earth was formless. It was unfinished. There was chaos. And the Spirit of God came and brooded over and then started to redeem, started to create, started to make new things. And in this moment of unfinished in Genesis chapter 3, the Spirit of God comes to Adam and Eve in the midst of their guilt and shame and fear. They, they, they know they're naked. They know they've rebelled. They hide from God because they know they've done something wrong. And God comes to them. The Spirit of God comes to them just like he did at the first time in creation. The Spirit of God comes to them. Why? Because the moment is not finished. It's not the end of the story. And some of you guys are living lives in fear. Some of you are living in shame. Some of you are living in guilt. Some of you are living and um, carrying words that have been spoken over you, negativity that has been spoken over you for years now. Maybe when you were a kid, somebody said something, you've never been able to let that go. You're rubbish. You're worthless. You'll never, amount. who could ever love you? You're fat. You're stupid. Maybe you've made choices that, that nobody knows about, that just make you feel empty. How could God ever love me? How could that church ever welcome me if they knew what I was like? I want you to see that it's not the end of your story. You're unfinished. And it's in the unfinished moment that the Holy Spirit comes to you, just like he did with Adam and Eve, just like he, he did with the creation today. Holy Spirit, come and move in every living room where people are listening to this sermon, in every podcast as people walk through parks. Come, Holy Spirit, and let them see that you see them, that you know them, that they are not yet finished. This is not the end of their story. The Spirit comes to Adam and Eve. And he asks them questions. He asks them three questions. He, he comes to them. Have you noticed this? He comes to them. He says, where are you? Because they were hiding in the bushes. Because they were naked. They, they were hiding. And God says, where are you? And he says, have, have you eaten from the tree? Of the knowledge of good and evil? Ha, have you, Eve, Adam, have, have you done this? Well, what is this thing you've done? Now, think about this. Use a bit of logic for a second. Is God sovereign? Yes. Is God all-knowing? Yes. Does God need Adam and Eve to tell him what they have done? No. He knows. The reason he's come, the reason his spirit has come is because he knows what they have done. He's moved towards them in their moment of unfinished. He doesn't need them to tell him what they have done. He knows what they have done. So why does he ask them the question? He asks them the question because the honesty of confession is the soil of redemption. The honesty of confession is the soil of redemption. God knows your name. He knows where you are. He knows the mistakes that you have made. He knows the things that you think exclude you from fellowship with him and fellowship with church. He, he knows the stuff that, that just runs deeply through your soul and makes you feel unfinished. But he wants you to say it. He knows it, and you know it, but you have to be honest 
before him about it. You don't need to tell me. You don't need to tell anybody else. But you do need to say to him, you do need to say, God, I am, I, I am broken. I am not the way I think I'm meant to be. I feel this sense of guilt. I've made these mistakes. This has been done to me and it stopped me stepping forward in my life. I'm, you need to speak it out loud to him in prayer. You need to speak it out loud to him in prayer. Because the honesty of confession creates the soil for redemption to happen. And then God does three things. The first thing he does is he makes clothes for them out of animal skins. I get the vegans are having a fit right now. I understand that. But, but he makes clothes for them. They're naked and they're shameful. And God just comes and meets with them in kindness. He says, let me meet your most basic need. Let, let, let me show you at a really simple level that I love you, that I care for you. We have this perception that God is constantly withholding goodness. That's why we make our own choices. And then when we realize that we're stepping into sin, and we feel, feel full of guilt and shame, we still doubt that God wants to release goodness over us. And yet God comes to them, and in their most simple need, he gives them clothes to wear. Don't be scared of God. Don't be scared to come to God. Don't be scared to be honest before God. He makes Adam and Eve clothes to cover their nakedness. And then he, ex he tells them they're going to be expelled from the garden. And he puts them out of this perfect garden into the part of the world and the earth that hasn't been, isn't part of the garden, isn't part of this very good part of creation. He puts them out of the garden. He closes the way back in. And that feels really harsh, doesn't it? But look what he says. He says, and he does this, and then he says to himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, he says to himself, lest they eat from the tree of life and become like us. We are not eternal beings. Eternity is a gift that God gives to us. Eternal life is a gift that God gives to us. And if Adam and Eve, in a sinful state, had eaten from the tree of life, they would have become eternally sinful. But God puts them out of the garden so they can't eat from the tree of life until he has been able to deal with their sin and give them eternal life. They can't take it themselves. And if they try, try to take it in their brokenness, they will be eternally condemned. So God closes the way, that way, for eternal life to them and instead begins to open up a new way. And the whole story of the rest of the Bible is the story of redemption, the story of the way back, the story of how God dealt with their sin, granted them forgiveness, and brought them back into relationship with him and gave them eternal life. Because the third thing that God does is he points them to the cross. As he talks to the serpent, he talks to Adam, he talks to Eve, he says to the serpent, the woman's seed. And that's a strange thing to say because in the Old Testament you would have talked about the man's seed, the man's descendants, but he doesn't. He talks about the woman's seed, the woman's descendants. 
the woman's seed. Serpent, you will strike at his heel, but he will crush your head. Who's he talking about? Not Eve's children, but Eve's descendants, Mary's son, Mary's seed, Jesus Christ, God born into our world, come amongst us, who was whipped and scourged and broken and tempted by the devil. Satan tried everything he could to make Jesus trust him rather than God. But Jesus was perfect in every way. And he went to the cross. And when he died on the cross, he crushed the serpent's head. He defeated the forever power of sin and death forever, for creation, for you, for me. See, the final thing that Jesus or that God does in this story, he points them to the cross. To that moment when what was lost in this act of disobedience is given back to humanity. Everything that God does as he engages with Adam and Eve, everything that he does, he does to reveal his heart. And his heart is to love. His heart is to forgive. His heart is to restore the things that were lost in the fall. Our identity as children of God. And our purpose as image bearers of God. Reflecting the purposes of God and blessing of God into the world around us. There's a story I want to finish with. Give me a sip of water. It's a story I want. I read it in a book. It's a story of a, a young girl who grew up in the Midwest in America. She, she grew up in a, a Christian family. Her parents went to church. They were good people. But as a lot of teenagers do, she, she went through a rebellious stage in her teens. And life at home was just one fight one battle after another until finally she felt she had enough. She got on a bus. She, she left home without telling them where she was going. She ran away. She went to the West Coast and when she got off the bus there, she somehow fell in with an older man who was involved in a lot of shady dealings. He threw parties where she was, was used in different ways. He gave her drugs. He gave her money. She felt like she wanted for nothing. She had all the freedom that she'd always wanted. Until the drugs became too much and where at the start she was choosing to use them, after a while she had no choice. She was completely addicted. And when that happened, the, the, the guy who had been using her threw her out on the streets with a drug habit and no money and nowhere to go. She bounced from hostel to hostel, sleeping homeless, doing things to, to get by that were horrible. She was on the verge of suicide. And in a fleeting moment of thought came into her mind of her parents back home. And she thought, before I totally give up, I, 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 I can do one more thing. And she lifted a, a payphone and phoned her parents' home number. There was nobody in. There was just the, the voicemail. And she left the voicemail. And she said in the voicemail, listen, it's me. I haven't seen you in years. I've made a lot of mistakes, but 
I, I don't even know if you want me back. But if you do, on Thursday the 16th, I'm going to be on a bus passing through our town. And the bus will stop there. And if you're there, I'll get off the bus. And if, if you're not, I'll, I'll just keep going and, and we can forget about each other. She hung up the phone. She didn't hear back from them. They couldn't phone her back. They had no number. So on the 16th, she, she got on the bus. She traveled. And the bus pulled into the, the bus station in her, in her city, in her town. And the bus driver announced a 15-minute break, and then we're going to go on to our destination. And everybody got off the bus for a comfort break to stretch their legs. And she sat there. She looked out the window. She couldn't see her dad, her mom, anybody. She thought to herself, you know, I'm, I, I'll just get off and, and look around. She, she got off the bus and head was down, you know, hoodie, hood was up. She looked around and she walked, couldn't see them anywhere. She walked into the, the bus station inside the terminal. And there was her dad. And not just her dad. Her, her mom was there and her brothers and sisters, her aunts, her uncles, her cousins, her grandparents. They'd called her church and the whole church had come out. They had tables with food. They had a banner up that said, welcome home. Her dad ran to her and put his arms around her and held her and just would not let her go. Would not let her go. Because the father's heart is always to love and to forgive and to make new. Jesus told a very similar story in the Gospels called the prodigal son, where we see the Father's heart is always to love and to restore and to make new. I want to invite the band to come up on stage just as we bring the service to a close. And just as they come up, some of you at home, you need to know something fundamentally true about God. That right now in this moment, he is waiting with his arms wide open to welcome you home, to love you, to forgive you. Jesus has already paid the price for it. He's already done everything that is necessary for you to receive new life. His arms are open. All you have to do is get on the bus. All you have to do is turn to him. All you have to do is say, Father, forgive me. That's it. And during the prayer in a moment, I'm going to give you the chance to pray that prayer. Maybe you've, you've never prayed that before. Or maybe you have prayed that before and you've just, it's been so long away from church, so long away from faith. You've backslid. Father's arms are open. And for some of you who have been Christians for a while and are walking strongly with God, here's what I want you to see. Your role in the story is not the kid on the bus. Your role in the story is to embody the love and the grace of the Father. Who do you need to welcome? Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to bless? Let's pray together now. 
Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. We want to thank you that you are better than we can even dare to imagine on our best days. And we're sorry that we, we complicate this thing called faith. We thank you, Lord, that your heart is gentle and lowly. We thank you that your heart is compassion and mercy. We thank you that you are the God who is full of covenant love and quick to forgive, always ready to forgive. It's who you are. Sounds too good to be true. Your amazing grace, it sounds too good to be true. And yet, Father, we see that even in this story in the Bible where sin comes into the world for the first time, even in that moment, you're pointing people to the cross. You're saying, I'm not finished with you yet. Let me come into your life. Let me forgive your sins. Let me rewrite your story. And if you're at home today, if your life feels less than it's meant to be, unfinished, shame, guilt, fear, sin, I want to give you the chance to, to come to the Father. I want to give you the chance to experience His amazing grace. I want to give you the chance to, to confess your sins and ask Him into your heart to be your Savior. Psalm 139, it, it tells us that God knows everything about us, every thought before we think it, every word before we say it, every action before we do it. And yet in the midst of that, confession creates the soil for redemption. What are you sorry for this morning? Just in the quietness of your living room, in the quietness of your heart, just, just say it to God. Ask for forgiveness. He will not withhold it. Turn to Jesus. Pray. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross and rising again. Thank you for the power there to forgive my sins and make me new. Come into my life. Make me your child, Lord. Help me finish my story well. Help me to know your amazing grace. Continue to respond. Continue to pray that prayer. Receive his forgiveness. Receive his love. Allow him to make you new. His grace is amazing. His plans for you are amazing. His love is amazing. But when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die and rise again to restore our relationship with God, our identity as children of God. He did it to restore our purpose, our calling to be people that carry and release the love and the grace and the goodness of God into the world around us. He, 
He, he invites us to be the fathers in this story who, to open our arms to lost children. The parts of this world that are less than they're meant to be. If you have a burden in your heart today, maybe it's for creation, maybe it's for injustice, maybe it's for education, maybe it's for health care, maybe it's for church. If you have a burden in your heart today, His grace empowers you to be a carrier of His presence and to release His hope to not just to see the problem, but to be part of the solution for your life to partner with the fathers, filled with the Spirit, to write a new story in our city and in our island. So as you continue to respond, as you continue to receive His grace this morning, name that burden that you have before him, name it out loud and ask him to to use your life as an offering to partner with him to rewrite that story. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.